Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Hey guys, welcome to episode 99 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we want to start the show off the way we always do, by thanking everyone who has left reviews or has um, sent us messages or commented on any of our social media pages. We always appreciate interacting with you, and we just want to say thank you. Yes, thank you guys. I mean, the overwhelming support has been just incredible. I mean, all the reviews on iTunes and the other platforms have been amazing, and I really, really appreciate it. We appreciate it. Yes, we do. (laughs) It's always nice hearing from everyone, so we do like that. And the constructive criticism does always help. It does. It's helped us grow, and it's so crazy that we're on episode 99. Next episode is 100. That's going to be a big one. That is definitely a milestone for sure. So yeah, we've always learned to like take in things that our listeners say and change the show and make it what you love. Yeah. Okay, so are you in the mood for some murder, John? Always. <laughs> on the night of June 18th, 2011, 35-year-old Cherie Ortiz Rios and her husband Jesse Rios had been out celebrating the fact that the next day was Father's Day. It was their celebration together before the one that they would have with their kids the following day. They had two kids, Catalina and Robert, who were in their teens. They had been at a casino for most of the night and were finishing it off by watching a movie. Just as it was ending, their dog began barking at their window in the living room. It would be strange for someone to be outside. They lived in El Rancho a small town in northern New Mexico with a population of just over 1,000. It was a tight-knit community that didn't get a lot of outsiders. It was always quiet, especially in the early morning hours. So Jesse got up to look out the window. He said that he had seen a car out there. It was parked adjacent to his property. That would have been odd because Jesse and Cherie only shared the property that they were on with their in-laws. So Jesse went into their bedroom and came back out with a gun that he had. He told Cherie that he was going to see who was in the car. Cherie watched from the window as her husband drove in the direction that she assumed the car had driven. She knew it was down a dead end. He came back shortly after he left. He told Cherie that he had driven behind the car and followed them down the dead end And then at the end of the street, he let them pass, but he didn't get a good look at who was in the car. The couple then went to bed without any further incidents. The following morning, Cherie was trying to call her parents' house. She wanted to wish her father a happy Father's Day and ask when they should stop over. They were next-door neighbors and close, but they always made sure to be courteous of each other's privacy. But her parents and her special needs brother that lived with them were not answering their cell phones or their house phone. So she walked outside to the front of their house and called out to them. And when no one answered, she decided to go inside. She used the key to get into their house and walked through the living room. She called out their names, but there was no response. So she walked down the hallway and into the master bedroom that her parents shared. And then she stopped. Her mother was lying face down on her bed. She was in her nightgown and surrounded by a pool of blood. There was a massive head wound on the left side of her head. Next, she ran into all the other bedrooms. They were empty. She ran throughout the house, but was stopped in the kitchen. A man was on the floor in his underwear. She couldn't tell whether or not it was her father or her brother. The wounds on his head were worse than the ones on her mother's, so she just couldn't tell. I mean, that's always, like, really hard, especially, like, when those people try to, like, when family members, actually, they go to, like, identify a relative, and if you can't, you can't make it out, that's horrible, imagine. this yeah. That's what's going on through her head right now, is I can't even determine whether or not this is my brother or my father. So that's pretty crazy. Yeah, you have to think how horrendous this crime scene must have been to not be able to 
determine whether or not someone's your father or your brother. So this must have been so traumatic for Sheree. Oh, yeah. So she ran back to her parents' house, screaming for her husband. They are dead, she kept screaming over and over again. My parents are dead. Jesse told his wife to wait at their house while he went over to check. Jesse quickly came back and broke the news to Cherie that she had actually found her mother and brother within the house. And it was her brother in the kitchen, but her father had also been killed. He had found him lying just outside the back door of the house. So her parents and her brother were dead. That's insane. It's so sad. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, in a, in a blink of an eye, like your whole family's gone. That's... That's heartbreaking. Right, you think you're just going, you know, it's, oh, it's Father's Day. I'm going to go over later. And then when someone doesn't answer their phone, to think that's why, it's just wild. It's also the significance of the day, you know, like yeah. it's Father's Day. So it's hard. Yeah. There's always going to be like this cloud over that day for the family. And yeah, for sure. Forever. So Cherie ran back to her parents' house with her cell phone in hand and she called 911. And if you are further interested in this case the 911 call is available on youtube uh, we'll post the link for you so she can be heard hysterically telling the santa fe 911 operator that her family was dead we have bodies she said they're all dead in el rancho the operator asked what happened and she responded i don't know i just my parents wouldn't answer the phone they didn't come out so i went over to check on them Cherie at this point was screaming and the operator had to ask her to stop yelling so he could hear her. So she's heard taking a deep breath and then with devastation in her voice, she just says, my parents are dead. When the police arrive at the scene, they are shocked by the carnage of it all. Each victim lay in large pools of blood. There was severe trauma to all of their heads. And there was so much blood on the victims and at the crime scene that it was really difficult to investigate and picture the wounds. Because the amount of damage that was done, the assumption was made that they had all been shot at point-blank range in the head. The residence was checked for evidence of shell casings or a gun maybe, but nothing was found. In fact, Nothing was the perfect word for the amount of evidence collected at the scene. When investigators are presented with scenes like this, there's usually a plethora of evidence, like fingerprints or shoe or sock impressions in the blood that's found at the crime scene because there was such a large pool of blood beneath uh, Stephen Ortiz and then the father, Lloyd Ortiz. So you would think there would be some impressions, but there was nothing. So a deeper search would need to be done of the property to obviously comb for other pieces of evidence like hairs or dust for fingerprints. But again, that's it's going to be difficult to do. You have to think, too, like this isn't just one victim in like one room of the house. This is the entire home with multiple victims. So, yeah, I mean, I guess you have to uh, investigate and deep, like do a deep search of every little part of the house. Like, yeah, several times. Yeah. And in, really, the whole property ended up being a crime scene because Lloyd was found in the threshold of the back door and the yard. So maybe, I mean, what they were assuming was that he was either trying to run or that he greeted the perpetrator. Okay. Yeah. So because she found the bodies, Cherie was the first person investigators wanted to talk to. She lived on the same property as her parents. The lot that they were living on was split in thirds. Cherie and her family lived on one third, and her parents, Lloyd and Dixie, as well as her brother, Stephen, lived on the other two thirds. Cherie told police that she had no idea who would want to hurt her parents. They were the nicest, most selfless people in the world. Lloyd worked as a tile contractor. He was extremely popular with those he worked with and the people of the town. And Dixie had worked at a nursing home and was loved by all of her patients there. They were dedicated members of the local church, and they had dedicated most of their lives to taking care of their adopted son, Stephen. 
Cherie explained that Stephen had joined their family in 1981, when her and her sister Angela, who was now also at the scene mourning the loss of her family, were teenagers. At seven months old, Stephen had suffered from shaken baby syndrome, and the left side of his body was left paralyzed, and he had cerebral palsy. Stephen had defied the odds and had learned to walk and talk with the love of the Ortiz family surrounding him, and he was thriving. He really became um, this wonderful like young man that around the community, and he helped out so much with the church, and it was because of the Ortiz family that he was able to, to live the life that he did, and he was so grateful, and they loved him so much, so it just seemed like a wonderful environment for him for it's a sad. child oh yeah and it's sad too because you wish i think i think i could say this collectively as as a society on this planet we all wish that there was more people like them that had a heart like that in order to take care of a kid with special needs because i'm sure yeah. it's not easy so just the fact that they were like selfless people like that i mean i gotta my hat my tip my hat off you know I know, like, the love and the supportive environment really allowed him to grow, and his two sisters said that he was amazing, that everyone loved Stephen, and he never failed to put a smile on everyone's faces. And the love that Lloyd and Dixie had for their children was only second to the love that they had for each other. The couple had been married for 34 years, but they had been murdered. Three very bright lights in this world were taken out with such a brutal force that this scene was really nothing short of a tragedy. Cherie did also tell the investigators about the car that had been parked on the property the night before. She mentioned that her husband had grabbed a gun and chased the vehicle from the houses, but that was the only unusual thing that she remembered. I have to say that's like totally unusual. That's a pretty big event. Like if your husband's going to grab a gun and then chase someone off of a property. I mean, it is. So I, I think that um, the casual undertone really is going to strike a chord with the investigators here. They told Cherie that they would want to talk to Jesse, her husband, a little bit later because the car might have had something to do with the murders. They wanted to formally question him down at the station, and she obviously agreed to that. But before they let her go to be with her family, they had one more question for her. While they were searching for evidence at her parents' house, the initial sweep, the investigators had come across a small fenced-in area in the yard. This was strange because the whole yard had been fenced in, but there was this second smaller section that was additionally fenced in. So it was like, hmm, what's in here? And when they opened the gate, they found 17 marijuana plants. So... They asked her the uncomfortable question in really the most respectful way that they could. They didn't want to disrespect her or her deceased family members. So they asked why her parents were growing marijuana. She answered the question easily. Her brother had a medical marijuana prescription, and because his parents were his caretakers, they had a growing license. So nothing was being grown illegally. She did tell the detectives in all honesty that her parents had occasionally smoked the pot, but that it was not something that they did all the time. However, in no way did they ever, ever sell any of it. That was supposed to be for Stephen. But I think what the detectives were thinking here wasn't necessarily something along the lines of, they were selling the drugs because they did know that the plants were not matured. So they didn't think, plus there was only 17 of them. There wasn't like this massive like sell operation that they had, but they were thinking, okay, did somebody know that they had these marijuana plants and they were trying to rob them and they became a target. Right. Yeah. I mean, I can get that, but I, you know, I do, I do want to say though, like you just said 17 plants. I feel like that's a lot. Yeah, I mean, I mean, listen, I, I, you know, I don't know anything about it. I just know that if you have 17 plans for like one person, I mean, maybe it's just to save money at that point. Well, you have to think about that. Yes, because if you are not insured, like even though it's medical marijuana, you still have to pay for it. Yeah, but you know what? So it does save money and you would need like the 17 plants over time 
because it takes a while for the plants to mature. I would even just say, let's just, I'm glad that because they found marijuana plants, it didn't sidetrack them from the investigation at hand. Because I feel like sometimes that can happen. Oh, totally. You know, like, because they could just think, oh, they're selling it. They became a target. But it's not becoming that. So I'm glad. Because you don't want, let's, you know, we have to focus on who has just been murdered in this residence, you know? So I'm glad it didn't become that. Right. Because based on what they saw on the property, because they had to search the whole property, it didn't seem like this was a selling operation. But it's a small town. So word probably gets around that they do have a selling license. So you could get people who want the plants. And if maybe uh, Lloyd was going out back and he caught someone in the backyard, I mean, that could make sense based on the scene. Maybe. So the night of the murders, the detectives asked Jesse Rios, the son and brother-in-law of the victims, if he would come in and talk to them about what happened the night before the murders took place. But when Jesse was questioned about the night, his story was very different from the one that his wife told. They told him what his wife had told them, and Jesse stated that that wasn't true, that he had never left the house. The detectives in the room with him pointed out the inconsistencies. I mean, huge inconsistencies. She's saying he left the house with a gun and chased down a car on their property, and he's saying he never left the house. So he then changed his story and said that maybe he may have stepped outside. Still not believing what he was saying, he was pressed harder. Finally, Jesse agreed to tell the whole story. He then confirmed that he had been watching a movie with his wife when the dog started barking. He saw a gray two-door car outside of his in-law's house, and he chose to chase it down. When they got to the dead end, he let the car drive away from him. The man asked why he didn't confront the person or the people in the car. And he said he didn't want problems, he just wanted them to leave. Okay. I mean, I will say that if you are that infuriated about a car being outside your property and you go and chase this vehicle to the end of the street, wouldn't you at least be mad enough to, like, at that yell point, something out the car? To just, like, be like, yo, buddy, like, or something. Like, you're going to progress. Like, you're going to keep going. You're not going to run out of your house to engage with this person and then just back right. off and turn the other way around. So that does make sense. And this is around um, 1.30 to 2 in the morning. So it's the really early morning hours. So I, I don't understand even the anger that someone's parked there. I know it was a little bit of an isolated area, but... Right, well, yeah, you're like, yeah, the escalation of it all yeah. is weird. Yeah, the whole, and it's clear that the detectives also thought this was really strange. You know, what's the point of grabbing a gun and chasing people down if, like you said, you're not going to confront them? And why did he lie about even doing this? Like, did he not want to tell the detectives, okay, I grabbed a gun and I could have, things could have escalated, but as I was chasing them, I realized, okay, don't do this. This is stupid. This could escalate. Like, is that what happened? Or maybe the gun that he possesses is not legal. I don't know. Yeah, so there there might have been motivations as to why you wouldn't tell the detectives that you did that. I mean, I can understand that aspect of it, but the whole situation is just a little strange. So the next question that they have for Jesse is about his relationship with his in-laws. He admitted that he had problems with Lloyd in the past, that there had been times that he had not lived up to Lloyd's standards, and that this caused a lot of tensions between the two families. For example, that large fence that the detectives saw surrounding Lloyd and Dixie's property, well, that was put up because Lloyd did not approve of the way that Jesse kept his property up, so he didn't want to have to look at it or be associated with it. Ooh. Ouch. Okay, burn. <laughs> um, so there, and that didn't happen too long ago, so, I mean... You have to think there were probably some tensions between the two families. It's not easy to live on the same property as your in-laws, I can imagine. Especially if they're not maintaining the property. Yeah. Right? For some people, that's definitely a, uh, you know, a must, if you will. Like, yeah, because it's, just... it's one thing if, like, okay, I don't like my neighbor, looks like a slob, but, like, 
that's your son-in-law. So <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that makes things uncomfortable. Yeah. So the detectives thought that they were beginning to find motive here with Jesse. And they were confused about the events of the night prior. Because of this, they chose to listen to the 911 call that Cherie had made to dispatch. In the tape, they heard a few things that also piqued their interest. First, she said that they were dead. They had all been shot and that they had been dead since that morning and that she could have saved them if she would have went over in the morning like she wanted to. Well, this was strange. How did she know the timeline? Like what made her think that they were killed in the morning and not the night before? Like it was just a piece of information that she wouldn't have known from just coming in and looking at a crime scene. So they thought this might be a tell. Okay. The police asked Cherie to come down to the station as well to answer some additional questions. As they were being questioned, a search warrant for their house was also being executed. The couple was grilled about the night of the murder in separate rooms. They basically had every minute of the night accounted for, which the detectives also thought was a bit strange. Like your alibi's a little too planned. So they said that they went to the casino. They knew how long they were there. They knew when they got home. They knew as soon as they got home, they put in the movie. And of course, the movie is a certain length. And right after the movie ended, they saw the car. Jesse left, came back a few minutes later, and then they went to bed. So they felt that that was a little odd. that They could account for every second of their day. And there was, I mean, I don't think that that's that odd. Like, I could tell you everything I did yesterday because it was yesterday. But I could also tell you that it's also not, I don't think it's like, I don't think it's weird if you can't recollect every moment of your uh, day either. Like, if you would ask me yesterday, oh, how long did you do this or what were you? How long did you play video games, John? Uh, I couldn't tell you because sometimes when you uh, play them, you lose track of time. Yes. You know, so like it's not a weird thing to like not know. No, it's true. I mean, the whole thing could go both ways. I think in my own personal opinion that Cherie and Jesse really understood the time frame of everything is because them going to the casino and doing that like Father's Day celebration isn't something they do all the time. So that's why it stuck out in their mind a little bit. Right. And the movie helps because you don't need to remember how long the movie is. It's right. It it can tell you. Right. Exactly. Like I mean, it's it's definitely a guideline of time. Oh, this is a two hour movie. Yeah. Okay. This is what I was doing for two hours. You know? So in all, there was no clear evidence or physical evidence from the house that was found. But police were still suspicious about the couple. So they asked them to give a DNA sample, which they both agreed to do. The following morning, the autopsies were all completed. The investigators learned interesting information from them. The pathologist was able to determine because all of the blood that was at the scene had not been present during the autopsy, obviously, that what everyone thought was gunshot wounds had not been gunshot wounds. It was impact trauma that caused the death of the Ortiz family. It was most likely that an axe-like object had been used to beat the victims and that a tremendous amount of force had been used. So they were hit so hard with this axe-like object that it looked like they had been shot at point-blank range. I mean, that's that's pretty brutal. Yeah. Wow. One of the investigators remembered that a pickaxe had been found in the backyard of the crime scene. So crime scene analysts were sent to pick up the axe. Obviously, um, the house was deemed a crime scene, so no one was in or out. So um, the evidence was safe, like nobody had touched it. Um, There was a patrol car watching the house at all times. So like the whole chain of evidence didn't get broken at all because they went back to the house. The pickaxe that they found did end up testing positive for um, blood and the blood from all three victims were found on the pickaxe, as were hairs from all three victims. 
Wow. Yeah. Okay, so now you even have the hairs on there too? Yes. Wow. Oh my God. However, just like the rest of the crime scene, no prints had been found on the weapon. So when the Ortiz Rios family was asked if the Pixac looked familiar, they said that they had never seen it before. So someone had brought the murder weapon to the scene and then left it there. And it had no fingerprints. I find that bizarre, though. I mean, could that be a mistake on their part, whoever did this? Because, I mean, you wouldn't want them to have the weapon. I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm thinking too much. No, but... I mean, I if I would never commit a murder, but if I did, I wouldn't leave the murder weapon at the scene. Right. I mean, and even if you're wearing gloves, still, you, you, want, you want nothing to impact you're you getting caught right like you you want to just make sure that every little um avenue is just kind of a done deal like it's closed off that way they can't come back to you and if that means the weapon like you wouldn't want that and lastly if you were to do that why would you go out of out of your way to wear gloves to not have your fingerprints on the weapon but then leave it there so it's it's so weird i don't know that is really strange because it seems like there is some planning and then some chaos so it does give us details about what really went down that night yeah that's a good point so the night of sheree and jess were further looked into the detectives got back cctv footage of the couple from that night and like they said they went to a casino they stopped at a gas station before they went there but even though some of their their story like all checked out it didn't necessarily clear them because it still placed them at their house at the time of the murder so they were on the property when the murder went down but the police and and this is really good on them because you know we always see this they didn't want to get blinders on they didn't want to just focus on Cherie and Jesse. So they appealed to the public for help. They created a tip line and spoke with friends, family, and acquaintances of the Ortiz family. One of the people that they spoke to had also been close to Cherie and Jesse Ortiz Rios. And it made the detectives question thinking of the couple as suspects in the murder. So this is actually helping them clear people as well as potentially finding, you know, more suspects. It seemed that Cherie, like her parents, was very generous and chose to open up her home to a child in need. The boy's name was Nicholas Ortiz. He was of no relation to the family. They just have the same last name. Nicholas told the detectives that he had been friends with Cherie's son, Robert. He lived up the street from the family. He didn't have a good life at home. He wasn't really getting along with his parents. So Cherie and Jesse knew about the troubles that Nicholas was having, so they offered him a place in their home. They set up their guest bedroom for him and bought him clothes and furniture. They basically took him in as if he was their son. That's crazy. I mean, very nice. But um, really I, mean, nice. I mean, I guess it just runs in the family, you know? Yes. So he said that while he was living at Cherie and Jesse's house, that he would often go over and visit Lloyd and Dixie with the family. Like, he would go over with them to visit their grandparents. They would have dinners and get-togethers, and it was all very nice. They're great people, he told investigators. In fact, on some occasions, he and Robert would go out with Robert's grandparents alone. And when they did that, Lloyd and Dixie paid for him and treated him as if he was one of their grandchildren. About one month into his stay at Cherie and Jesse's house, the couple had noticed that some money was going missing and that things had been moved around. So Nicholas said that they talked to him about this and he admitted that he had taken money because he just didn't have any. So they agreed that if he started doing chores around the house, that they would start giving him a weekly allowance. So even though he, like, screwed up here, they're understanding why he did and they're trying to help him still. I mean, that just shows that these are really good people. I mean, yeah, it shows their character and how good they are. 
I mean, because you, you know you want to sh- show the, this person it's not okay to take money, but you know if you do the right things and the steps, this is you know you'll be rewarded for it. So, I mean, once again, just uh, complete showmans. They're really nice people. So maybe not people who committed a murder, right? Yeah. And that's kind of what detectives were thinking. The investigators thought that Nicholas Ortiz's connection with the family was quite interesting. They wanted to confirm his story with the Ortiz-Rios family. Cherie did confirm everything that Nicholas said. However, things didn't end well with Nicholas. Cherie said that one day the boy had come home with a black eye and he just looked like he had been roughed up. So when she and Jesse asked him about this, he told them that he had joined a gang at school. And to get in, he and another boy had to allow the other members of the gang to beat them up. That night, the couple tried to explain to Nicholas that he shouldn't be in a gang and gave him all of the reasons why that wasn't the right path for him. So again, she was explaining that they were trying to help Nicholas, but no matter what they were trying to do, he seemed to always be like deviating from the plan. So from that point on, things began to go downhill. Nicholas just wasn't connecting with them the way that he had been, and his relationship with their son had begun to deteriorate. One night, Lloyd and Robert, so grandfather and grandson, were going into Lloyd's backyard to cut down a plum tree that had rotted. And when they were there in the backyard, Nicholas had jumped up from behind a bush and tried to scare them. Robert was surprised, but Lloyd understood what had happened. For some reason, Nicholas had been in the backyard trying to do something or was waiting and had not expected them to come outside, so he was playing it off by trying to scare them. See, Lloyd knew what was really happening, right? Because he has this really tall wooden fence, and you can't just get in because the fence is padlocked. So that meant that Nicholas would have had to jump, scale the fence, get over, but Robert and Lloyd weren't planning on going outside. It was a last minute thing that Lloyd asked Robert to help him with. So it wasn't like, oh, Nicholas knew we were coming out and he was out there to scare us. No, he was just out there. So why was he out there? So this got Lloyd really upset. And for him, it was the final straw. He was a little weary about this kid being around, especially since he joined the gang and he was stealing money. So and he also knew the toll that trying to help Nicholas was really having on his daughter and It didn't seem like the boy wanted help. So he really let loose. And he told Nicholas that he was no longer welcome in his home. That night, he called his daughter and told her that it was in her best interest to keep Nicholas out of the house. Um, Especially if he was in a gang, he shouldn't be around the other children. I mean, at that point, I mean, he's really just looking out for his daughter. I mean, at the end of the day, because they're obviously not seeing something that Lloyd is. Yeah, I think so. that they just really care about Nicholas and they're invested at this point. So it is kind of hard to see when it's like, when do you have to stop helping someone because it's hurting you and your family? Right. So Cherie agreed with her father. She told Nicholas that maybe it was best if he went home and tried to work things out with his parents again. So she told him that he was welcome to take all of the things that they bought for him with him. So this was interesting. Nicholas Ortiz was brought back in for questioning because he hadn't told this part to police. Had he murdered Lloyd in revenge for ending his stay at the Ortiz Rios home and had to kill the other members of the family because they'd been there at the time? When the detectives asked him about Lloyd kicking him out of the households, basically, he said that it was true and that it had happened. Lloyd had told him that night that he messed up any trust that the family had with him. The detective asked Nicholas how that made him feel, and he said it made him feel bad. They then asked him for his alibi the night of the murders. He said that he had been home with his family, his father and his sister, the whole day, and that night he went into his father's room around 12 or 1 a.m. and said Happy Father's Day, and then he went to bed. This story was corroborated by his family. His mother even stated that when she got home from work, 
around 7 or 7.30 a.m. that morning, she went in to check on her son and that he was sleeping in his bed. So he had an alibi for that night and that morning. But detectives still wanted to find out who Nicholas was. Was he that person that was hell-bent on getting revenge? In those cases, the perpetrator often spoke to others about being angry with the, the victims. So they decided, okay, let's talk to Nicholas's friends, family, acquaintances, and see if he's ever talked about being really angry with Lloyd Dixie. You know, that seems like the best plan of attack to, to rule out Nicholas Ortiz. The people of the community only had the nicest things to say about Nicholas. He was very courteous and polite. He was always willing to help out with his local church, which was actually the same church that Lloyd and Dixie had gone to. And it just didn't seem like Nicholas was the kind of person that would commit those horrific murders. He, of course, was going down a bad path, but he was a good kid. That's really what everyone was saying. He was also 16 years old. So detectives were thinking that that would have been difficult for him to carry out on his own. Mm, I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, we've seen, you know, children we've, that have that are actually younger or the same age commit extremely violent acts yes, of murder. We so, have seen it all. So, yeah. And sometimes and I, maybe I'm wrong for saying this, but sometimes it's the ones that you think that won't do it are the ones that can. Yeah. And that's why they're able to get away with it. Yeah. So on June 21st, the detectives got a call from Sheree. She said that she had found something in the house that she wanted them to, to check out. She and her sister had found a safe in their parents' house. They had not known about it and didn't want to open it or touch it until the police got there in case it had something to do with the murders. So this was strange because during their initial search of the house and their second search of the house for evidence, a safe had not been found by crime scene technicians. Investigators got there right away. Cherie and Angela told them that their uncle had informed them that their father Lloyd had asked him to build a piece of furniture that would contain a safe. And sure enough, inside the piece of furniture, there was a safe. The investigators brought the safe down to the station and had it open there because the sisters didn't know the combination. Inside the safe was $80,000 in cash and some life insurance paperwork. The detectives asked the sisters if they had known about the money. They said they didn't know about the money at all. All they knew was that their parents kept cash and change in three huge water jugs that they had in the house and that they would save all of their money in those jugs for an entire year and they would use that money to go on their annual Las Vegas trips. It's actually kind of funny because... That's adorable. It's adorable but also relatable because my dad had one of those. He would have one of those really big jugs. And empty out the chains. I feel like everybody does. <laughs> or maybe not. I Some don't know. people have like changed jars or like jugs or anything. But this was like huge. This is something that they love to do every year. I remember I used to tip that jug. And I used to make some of the quarters come out. And I would go buy Pokemon cards. Dad, I'm really sorry. But then one time my dad said, why is the change jar getting low? Or the jug getting low? Why am I know. putting change in every day? And I'm it's like, I don't know. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you ever found out, but I bought Pokemon cards. So I was young. Wow. I was a kid. So Life of crime. <laughs> I guess. Well, um, maybe that was the motive, though, for the murder. If someone knew about these, I mean, they would have thousands of dollars in these jugs by the end of the year. So that's a motive. People have killed for less. That's true. But now $80,000, obviously the killer or killers didn't find the, this $80,000 because the safe was hidden. But had they heard that the family had the $80,000 and was looking for it, didn't find it and then left. Yeah, yeah, you're right. According to all of the paperwork that had been found in the house and in the safe, the $80,000 was part of a cashed in life insurance policy. However, there were still two more claims in existence. Cherie Ortiz-Rios had been named by the couple as the power of attorney, so she was to inherit the insurance policies and the $80,000. Again, she told the detectives that she had no clue about the money or the insurance policies, and by her reaction to everything, they believed her. 
Like she had no idea she was going to be inheriting that money. Okay. Now this case is pretty interesting. There is motive everywhere. Marijuana plants in the backyard, 80,000 plus cash in the house. If you count the saving jugs too. And either of those things alone could be a cause for homicide. But in this case, the police didn't think they were, which is so ironic. That is true. There is a lot of reasons to kill them and take what they have. But none of those were the reasons. Right. And there was also people with bad blood, like the, like the uh, son-in-law. Right. That they didn't get along, so it's kind of weird. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the pot plants weren't even matured, so there's no evidence that... And they weren't taken, so... It and wasn't then, that. Yeah, and then the other one was in a gang. Well, the kid was in a yeah, allegedly. It's pretty crazy. It also was pretty clear that robbery might not have been the motive because Lloyd's wallet had been found on the counter next to Stephen's body, and nothing had been taken from it, and nothing was missing from the house. So it was pretty crazy. Who came in here and did this, and why did they do it? So because of all of that. Because of the fact that there was no motive, there was no clues, there was no evidence, there was nothing, the case stalled for 16 months until October of 2012. The detectives received a phone call from the Santa Fe Sheriff's Department. They were claiming that they had a young woman in jail who had information about a homicide that took place in El Rancho, New Mexico. She had told them that she needed to get something off of her chest. The woman that detectives were going to talk to was 24-year-old Ashley Royball. She had a long criminal record of burglaries and drug possession. Before they went and talked to her, they also checked into her history. She herself had grown up in El Rancho and had been in and out of detention centers since she was in high school. She got into a lot of trouble, but those who knew her said, very similar to Nicholas Ortiz, she just went down the wrong path. She'd gotten into a lot of trouble, but those who knew her said she'd just gone down the wrong path. The first thing the detectives tried to establish when they got into the room with her was the fact that the information that she was giving up was being done so voluntarily. But as they were trying to go over this with her, she just kept repeating, I know who did it, I know who did it, I know who did it. She claimed that the night of the murders that she had been smoking pot with her cousin Jose and their mutual friend, Nicholas Ortiz. Okay, we're getting somewhere here. They had been talking about how they needed money and Nicholas volunteered that he knew the Ortizes, meaning Lloyd and Dixie, had cash in their house. So I think he's referring to the three water jugs here. Or maybe he was, well, probably, but maybe he saw while he was there, maybe them go into that safe at least one time. No, because they never found the safe. Oh, okay. Maybe he had heard about the cashing in of a life insurance policy, but I don't think he would know they would have the cash in the house. So I really think he's, they were just smoking pot and they were talking about the water jugs. Because, yeah, I mean, you got to think if they're full, I mean there there's a lot of money in there thousands of dollars (laughs) right and to a 16 year old boy thousands of dollars is a lot of money so the agreement was that they were going to rob the couple well the boys were and she was going to be the getaway driver in her two-door gray 1997 saturn okay so that was the car that that the husband saw and he went out to confront Mm -hmm. But then didn't confront. Right. So some, yeah, that was weird. But some things are starting to come together here. So she said that after about 30 to 45 minutes of waiting, Nicholas called her to come back. Now, she was parked a little bit away from everything because now we have to assume that while she was waiting for them to come out, she was parked kind of adjacent to Cherie and Jesse's property. And that's when Jesse chased her out of the the property dead end. So she was away. So when Nicholas came out of the house, she wasn't there. So he called her and then she came back and picked him up. She said that 
when he got into the car, she saw that he had blood all over himself and that there was also a garbage bag tied to his right foot. That would be why there's no foot impressions in the blood. Oh, okay. He told her that Jose had lost his nerve and ran away, but he continued in the house. I messed up, he told her. I messed up. I killed them. And he just kept repeating that phrase to her. She added before she ended the story that the boys had left the car with socks on their hands so they wouldn't leave fingerprints. And this was interesting because it would explain why there were no fingerprints anywhere and why there were no fingerprints on the murder weapon. The investigators asked where her car was so they could test it for blood. But she said that she had sold her car for scrap metal just under a year before. Okay, so there's many things to consider here. Would Nicholas Ortiz do this? He has an alibi that's corroborated by his family. Granted, his family. The Ortiz family took him in. So would he really hurt them? And this woman's in jail. So was she just trying to lessen her sentence? Also, she's leaving out a pretty big thing here. They brought the murder weapon. So she didn't see them bring an axe in. She didn't mention that they brought the axe. I know there is a lot to unfold here. I mean, I guess I'll, I could start with the only thing that gives what she's saying any sort of credibility, in my opinion, is that she is describing ways of there not being fingerprints or footsteps anywhere. Uh, I mean, foot impressions anywhere. As far as his, or at least any of their, you know, the one kid's alibi, I mean... You have to think the the family that he actually belongs to, they must there must be dysfunctionality there, and for him to live in someone else's home while he has a mother in a home down the street or around the block wherever, kind of you know how credible is her testimony about about you know his whereabouts and his timeline. So I mean you know that's another thing, and then you have the weapon. I mean, I mean she didn't see them bring in an axe, but. Maybe that was there. What, they were concealing in a pickaxe? It was huge. Did they put it in the trunk? But it's her car. Like, she would have seen this all happen. They would have had to get it out of the trunk. What if they... Well, was the pick was the pickaxe ever determined if it was, if it was like, on the property already? It was, well, they asked um, Cherie and her husband, and they said they'd never seen it. But you have to think if someone owns a home, they have an area where they can keep tools to do lawn work. Okay, so maybe you're thinking that. It, but then why would they go rob a house with nothing? They were just going and clean? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you have to think they're 16 years old and 17 respectively, right? right. I mean, I don't know. I mean. Maybe they weren't planning. They were also high while they were doing Well, he this. also said that he killed them, that he didn't mean to kill them. So you're right. going there to rob money. You're not going there to commit murder. So maybe that just so happened it was a accidentally. Mistake. Well, not a, I don't want to say mistake, but it was definitely like he, they, their intentions weren't to go in there and start killing them brutally. Okay. So who knows that that weapon that was used to kill them could have been on the property, could have been the family's pickaxe. I mean, think about it. Even someone like me who doesn't even cut our own lawn because I have a bad back, I still have... A lawnmower. Right. Know, I still have things that I can use if I had to. Well, I know what you're saying. Whereas, like, if they were to ask our parents about, like, the tools we have, they might not know. Right, exactly. Right. My, my dad's not going to be like, oh, yeah, I know all the tools in his shed right. that he doesn't use. Okay. <laughs> so now that we got that story, let's take a break to hear from our final sponsor of the show. So the detectives told Ashley that they would look into the story that she was telling them and that they would get back to her. The first thing they needed to do was prove that Nicholas, Jose, and Ashley were together the night of the murder. They subpoenaed the cell phone records of the three of them. It was true that communication between the three went up during the time of the murders and just after. The detectives brought Nicholas in for questioning. They confronted him with all of the information they had against him. Ashley's story, his phone records and the fact that they were going to get his actual text messages in a matter of days. Nicholas at first denied any involvement in the murders, but after the investigators brought up the phone records, he realized that they had a lot more than he thought they did. He said that he didn't want to talk anymore and that he wanted to go home if that was his right. 
The detectives told him that it was and that he was free to leave. They really didn't want to push him here because they wanted to keep a line of communication open between themselves and Nicholas. So they just said, okay, you can head out. Right. I mean, you're not going to push this guy too far. I mean, you're bringing him for some questioning and you're going to send him on your on his way because you're going to try to piece together now what you can and come up with the most likely suspect. I mean, right? I mean, that's just the process of it. Next, they brought in Jose Roybal for questioning. And this is the cousin of Ashley that was supposedly there that night. Because he was 15 years old, they needed to ask permission for him to be interviewed. Now, just to kind of like backtrack here a little bit. I know it's a year later, right? Right. So that means during the time of this crime, a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old are hanging out with a 23-year-old. I'm just saying here that like Ashley is a lot older than the two boys. That is true. So I'm I'm just kind of like painting the whole picture here. Because if he's 15 now, this happened 16 months ago. I mean, most likely he was 14. He could even potentially have been 13 during the commission of this crime. So, I mean, that's very young. So because he was 15 at the time, they needed to ask permission for him to be interviewed. His parents gave their permission for him to be in the room by himself. Now, even at the age of 15, Jose had his own problems. He had a really bad reputation in town. Um, with the local police force and with different owners of different stores. Um, He was known to get into a lot of trouble, especially when he would drink. And he drank a lot. During his interview, he said that Ashley, his cousin, had dropped off himself and Nicholas at the Ortiz house. He said that Nicholas told him that when they got out, that he was going to kill the family. So Nicholas was planning on murdering the family. He told him that he didn't want to do that. Nicholas seemed as if that was what he was determined to do, and he started walking towards the fence that they were supposed to scale. Scared, Jose ran and wanted to go home. So he like ran into a nearby stream. He had to cross it, and then he ran all the way back to his house. He didn't want to murder anyone, he said. And about 45 minutes later, Nicholas and Ashley showed back up at his house and he said that when they did, Nicholas was covered in blood, he was white as a ghost, and he had known that he did it. So, just because someone is young doesn't mean that they can't kill. Yeah. Because here we are, another, uh, I mean, it's sad, um, but another example of a young, impressionable person is now roped in to this I'm talking about the the younger boy now. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that he. You know what I'm trying to say. He's wrapped up in, in to story. what the 16 year old's doing. You know what I mean? But like, it's possible. That's why you don't write anything off. Right. Well, maybe that's why Nicholas said, "Okay, let's go rob these people. I know they have money to get the other people involved in the crime." But his plan the whole time was to murder the Ortiz family. Is that what you're saying? Yes. So Jose's story seemed to match Ashley's. Now that there were two witnesses with the same story and it implicated Nicholas Ortiz, Jose's story seemed to match Ashley's. So now there's two witnesses. They have the same story and both of them are implicating Nicholas Ortiz in the murders. So on February 12, 2015, Nicholas Ortiz was arrested for the murders of Lloyd Dixie and Stephen Ortiz. When he was brought in to the police station, the detectives presented him with the charges against him. Three of the charges were for murder, and the other two were related to the breaking and entering. Nicholas looked at the detectives and said that he didn't agree with two of the charges. So that's basically an admission of murder there. I mean, he's admitting to at least one of the murders, because only two charges were the breaking and entering. So he's admitting to one murder or possibly all of them. I mean, I guess at that point... He knows he's caught. He, you know you're done. I mean, they got you now. So it's kind of like you're just trying to not get caught up, uh, not pinned with all of it, I guess. Right. But I mean, the, the same, the same um, situation is going to happen. You're still going to go to prison. Well, the whole time, Nicholas was totally uncooperative. So the case was going to go to trial. 
The investigators were happy to tell the Ortiz family that they finally had answers. But they know it would be hard to hear that the person that killed their family was someone that they had once welcomed into their home. Cherie stated in an interview that she had since done for the newspapers and TV that it didn't make sense to her. She didn't think that Nicholas would have been capable of doing what he did. She did know that Nicholas knew about the three saving jugs that were in her parents' house. So she has basically assumed since then that maybe that was what the kids were after. The trial of Nicholas Ortiz began on June 15, 2015. Although he was 16 when he committed the crimes he was accused of, he was tried as an adult. The prosecution was confident with their case. They had two witnesses that confirmed that Nicholas had gone into the house by himself and came out covered in blood. However, when he got on the stand, Jose changed his story. He said that there had actually been more planning than initially stated. It was Ashley, the girl who was older, way older than the two boys, that had told them to just murder the family. It would make things easier. Nicholas had brought up the fact that there were, there was cash in the house and that they were going to go rob them. Ashley said, just murder them. Before they left the car, she gave them socks to put on their hands and Kleenex to put on the bottom of their shoes so they would leave no footprints. Then she gave Nicholas the weapon. Oh, okay. Here we go. And she dropped them off. Jose, now remember, this is her cousin, said that once they got out of the car, everything was the same. He got scared and he ran away, but Nicholas went through with it. And then he and Ashley came to his house about 45 minutes after. He said Nicholas was going to knock on the back door once he hopped the fence. And that he was, that was going to be the plan to, to kill them. And he couldn't do it, so he never hopped the fence and he just ran back home. Well, that kind of explains a lot more to this case like than we previously have like talked about. I mean, it, it kind of changes everything here. Oh, yeah. Like, that really does answer a lot of questions for us. It, and at the same time, it was actually really hard for the family to realize in court just how their family members had been killed. Nicholas must have knocked on the back door of the house, and then Lloyd came to answer it. And because most of the hits from the pickaxe were, well, all of them, were on the back of Lloyd's head, it makes sense that Nicholas probably hid. And then when Lloyd came out to see who was at the back door, that Nicholas attacked him from behind, and that when he fell down, he hit him several times again. And this was all with the five-pound pickaxe. So while he was forced to the ground and was being hit in the back of his head and several times in his upper back, it must have been just a really painful, difficult death for Lloyd, which is so sad. Yeah, it is. During an interview with the Albuquerque Journal, Cherie and Angela would state that the worst part of their father's murder was that they knew him and that he would have been thinking about their mother and their brother the whole time and that he wouldn't be able to protect them. Yeah. Which is just so heartbreaking. Next, Nicholas must have gone into the master bedroom and hit Dixie in the temple twice. He then must have been trying to get the money from the jugs when he was confronted by Stephen in the kitchen. Stephen, with his kind nature and diagnosis of cerebral palsy, could not have posed a serious threat. Nicholas could have run, but he started swinging. And Stephen attempted to fight for his life, but was overcome with the weapon. Stephen was hit 17 times with the pickaxe. Once he killed Stephen, Nicholas didn't take anything. He ran from the house, covered in blood, and left the pickaxe in the backyard. And he called Ashley to come pick him up. So, kind of like we said, it was initially planned, which is why there was no fingerprints, but I think it was a frenzied attack and maybe he was upset and guilty or was feeling dazed or crazed 
and he just left the pickaxe. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty sad. I mean, and like you said, like he obviously had some issues with Lloyd. Yeah. Which I think for him made it easier. I don't think we can like sit here and say, oh, it was all Ashley saying to him, go and do it. I think it was a combination of the two. Right. You know what I mean? And really, honestly, you know, like we'll get into with this trial. It's a he said, she said. We don't know what happened or what was the like real involvement of the three people. During the trial, Nicholas does not testify. But now this trial has turned into Jose's story against Ashley's story. Who's telling the truth? And the jury had to figure this out. After three and a half days of deliberation, the jury was unable to come to a consensus about what happened that night. They stated that it had been a he said, she said, with no evidence. So it was declared a mistrial. So just over a year and a half later, a second trial happened in December of 2016. And in this trial, Nicholas Ortiz was found guilty of all three murders and breaking and entering. After many failed appeal attempts, Nicholas Ortiz was finally sentenced on October 28, 2019 to 25 years in prison. Now you have to remember that he's already served four. Right. So the surviving members of the Ortiz family, Cherie and Angela, were not happy with this sentence. That meant for each murder, he only got about eight years, which really is a low sentence. Yeah, I would think that it would be like 25 years conserved consecutively, right? Like, maybe? Yeah, he was sentenced to 25 years for all of the crimes. Instead of, I know like what you're saying is that if he should have been charged 25 years, but maybe serve them consecutively. Right, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's not what happened here, though. And I think that what it has to do, the sentencing part, has to do with his age when the crimes were committed because he was 16 years old because honestly the the sentencing would have been a lot lighter if he would have been tried as as a juvenile so i think that even the fact that he was tried as an adult i don't want to say the family was i don't i don't want to use the word lucky but in a lot of cases they're not tried as adults and then there is no sentence yeah, if, exactly. If you're tried as a juvenile, right? So I mean, like in this case, he was he was a kid under the age of eighteen, and he was being convicted as an adult, yeah. which at the time that sounds like the best option for the crime. Like it fits the like the punishment fits the crime as far as they're concerned because of his age, right? Yeah, and like as of right now, I mean, the latest he can get out was 2040, unless he commits more crimes in prison, but. It's really not that far away. So Ashley Roy Bull was sentenced to 20 years for her involvement in the crimes, but six of those years would be um, served through probation. And for 14 of those years, she would be incarcerated. I believe she did. I think she did have a larger role than she was making out initially, which is very strange because no DNA was left at the scene. This was a, this was a head scratcher. Police would have, I don't think, I think this case would still be unsolved if Ashley Roy Ball never came forward, which is interesting because she's now serving 20 years for it. So what was her real role in the crime? And, and, you know, for that matter, what was, what was Jose Roy Ball's involvement in the crime? He got full immunity for his testimony. Right. No, I understand what you're saying. I think once again, it comes down to the age of the people being accused, right? Or yeah. or whatever, you know. He, she was 23. She was the only actual adult in the situation. And she should have known better than that. Yes. You no, know what I I'm saying? So to tell that. a 16-year-old and a, what, a 13-year-old, that's her cousin, to go and commit murder, that it would just be easier. And then you're the getaway driver as well. Yeah, you probably do deserve the time. I mean, it's it's you're the only adult. Yes, that's With a fully crazy. developed brain that can make decisions. So you're held to a higher standard. That's kind of just the way the, the law sees it, I'm sure. Right. And, you know, at the end of the day, this is a really, this is a sad story. Cherie, like her parents, took in a child in need. And this time it hurt them. 
And it's always such an injustice when something so horrible happens to people who are so good. And I'm saying that for the members of the Ortiz family that were murdered, but also for the members of the Ortiz family that are still alive. Right. And I'm sure that there is a a decent amount of guilt, probably, from one of the from the daughter. She took in this kid that had a horrible home life, gave him everything that he needed, clothes on his back, food, a place to live and everything. And that person that she was helping killed her family. Right. Oh, it's so and sad. so you have to think that like there's no way that she's living her life not, you know, feeling like in her own way responsible. It's sad. Um, you know, but like it's that's a rough thing to deal with. Right, and she shouldn't feel that way because no, she if shouldn't. her parents were in the same situation, they would have done the same thing. They would have thing. done the same thing because they're good people. Right. But I'm just saying, like, that's something that you can't dismiss. I'm sure that has yeah. gone by some, you know, in her mind. You know what I mean? Because they're your family. <laughs> it really is so sad. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of case number 99. I can't 99. believe the next one's 100. But before we go, we do want to thank all of our new patrons from Patreon. And if you want to join our Patreon page, you could do that by going to patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. So we just want to say thank you and welcome to the family to Taylor Villanueva, Janae Young, N.T., Francis Phillip, Shantae, Tallulah Huffman, Amy Pratt, Mackenzie upped her pledge from $2 to $5. Thank you. Sheamus, Melody Harris, Ashley Chitwood, Sherry Cow, Sarah Kelly, Adele Langworthy, Caitlin Locke, Caitlin Straylinger, Cindy Ray Charlebos, Megan Wright, Darcy, Elizabeth, Poppy Gale upped her pledge. Thank you so much. JC Edgar, Amy Otsby, and Nick Carchain. Thank you all so much for becoming patrons. We cannot thank you enough, and we can't wait to bring you more and more episodes. Yes, thank you, guys. Thank you so much. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.